Have you ever traveled through the Midwest of the United States? If you have, you'll know it's really flat. It's flatter than a board. Flatter than Wile E. Coyote after being run over by a steamroller. Its flatness makes for great things like looking off into the distance and wondering about life's purpose. Or catching a wind chill in mid-February that is as cold as the Arctic, which makes you cynically question life's purpose. Is it to be cold? Sometimes, instead of flatness, there are hills. Little bumps of hills that are actually not hills at all, but a landfill made to look like a hill. I grew up in the Midwest, and I remember this one road trip where my parents drove my sisters and I through Wisconsin, and we saw a grouping of these lumps, bumps, and mock hilltops, and my sisters and I just kind of watched them pass. It's not like the mountains of the West, okay? The Midwest has qualities unseen. We don't need to flaunt our beauty. But suddenly, atop one of these majestic hills, there appeared a white pole that was 50 meters tall and supporting the blades of a wind turbine. Then there was another, and another, and then there was another. It was the year 2000, I was 12, and I had just seen my first wind farm. And since then, wind power has become big business. Those 50 meter tall wind turbines I saw have now been replaced with skyscraper tall behemoths hosting turbine blades that are as long as a jumbo jet. And my excitement has been exceeded by governments and investors. According to Bloomberg's 2019 New Energy Outlook, renewable energy is set to attract 10 trillion US dollars of investment by 2050. The reason for this investment bonanza is twofold. First, and no matter what anybody says in our society, this is always first, wind energy and renewable energy in general has become extremely cheap. Cheaper than coal, cheaper than oil. The second reason is because renewable energy dramatically lowers our society's carbon emissions, and we are in the middle of an historic moment where we have this vanishing safety window to reduce our emissions. So everyone is getting in the game and suggesting a new way for the world to lower its ecological footprint. And to be honest, I didn't want to be left out, so I decided to join in, and I got together some of my colleagues and asked them on what industries the world should focus on to lower our emissions. And they had some great ideas. If I had Bill Gates type money, I would invest in carbon capture. I would take an approach where we start weaning off uh, vehicles, particularly those vehicles that are reliant solely on fossil fuels. It would have to be investment in low carbon energy solutions. I would invest in three key areas that link to both of these. First is into transportation infrastructure, greening or electrifying vehicles. And the third is greening our energy systems. You know, maybe one day we can uh, set up a bunch of nuclear energy plants out in space. You hear that? Newness. All those projects. Whether it's transportation infrastructure, which require new roads, or investment in low carbon energy solutions, which require new buildings, or even a bunch of nuclear energy plants out in space, which I guess requires NASA. All these things are new. So the experts seem to agree on one thing, new stuff is the only way for us to lower our emissions. But when it comes to lowering carbon emissions, is focusing on the new really the best idea? Because the thing is, new stuff is made with old stuff. 
A wind farm is made from the same basic materials as a coal-fired power plant, and sometimes the materials we use to build a more sustainable future can actually cause us to be less sustainable. And today on our program, we are going to discuss a material that is used in basically everything. Cement, the main binder in concrete, and how its production is so polluted it is creating this odd societal paradox where we are emitting a massive amount of carbon to transition away from a carbon-intensive economy. From MSCI ESG Research, this is ESG Now. I'm Mike DiCibato. Stay tuned. So there was just this massive green bond issuance made by a Nordic company called Tenet, for 1.25 billion euros. And the plan is to use those proceeds to build and update a total of 11 offshore wind farms in the North Sea. And tenants going to use the power from those wind farms to generate electricity for around a million homes in Germany and the Netherlands. The build was a massive company event, so Tenant decided to upload some of its builds on YouTube. And right now you can go and watch some of them and hear a Tenant employee tell you about the benefits of the wind farm and that they are totally huge and that as part of the build, Tenant used the biggest crane in the world to install this state-of-the-art DC converter station at sea, which makes transporting electricity to Tenant's customers easier. The videos are sort of like watching a How It's Made episode. You know, those episodes on American TV that show you how the world makes all its pencils, for example. Except in this instance, Tenet didn't actually tell you how the wind turbine itself was made. It just showed us how they installed all these wind turbines to make a complete wind farm. The omission is an important one. A wind farm is marketed as a low-carbon substitute to fossil fuels, and it definitely is, but it's also partly made with cement, and cement is extremely pollutive. The cement industry is the second largest industrial emitter of carbon after the steel industry. If it were a country, it would be the third largest emitter behind the U.S. and China, and we use cement for basically everything. I would bet you are right next to some cement right now. Or maybe you're standing on some cement. Or at least you're looking at some cement right at this moment. It is so abundant in our society, it is the second most used material behind water. And the incredible scale of its importance was captured by the well-named Vaclav Smil, who is a historian, and he wrote a book called Making the Modern World, Materials and Dematerialization, which told of Chinese companies using more cement between 2011 and 2013 than the U.S. did throughout the entire 20th century. And that staggering figure doesn't even account for the cement needed to complete China's Belt and Road Initiative. So this isn't just about wind farms. I admit that story was kind of to take you by surprise. Cement and the emissions associated with its production is a societal problem because we use cement everywhere and for everything. If you want to build something, you can almost not get away with not using cement or concrete. Morgan Ellis, our industry lead on construction materials and recent author of an industry report on cement. Cement and concrete is required for anything that requires stability or any structure that needs to stand in the environment for any length of time and of any size. I mean, think on it. An offshore wind farm needs to not float away. 
So what material can anchor a skyscraper tall turbine to the sea floor? What about support that state-of-the-art DC converter station tenant used? Or ensure that new water pipe the city just installed won't come out of place? Or secure all the solar panels being fitted around the globe? Or build the new LEED green certified buildings we have planned? Or build any of the seawalls that we might need if the, if the tide rises? Cement. It all comes down to cement. And there are three reasons why cement is the protagonist of our world's growth. First, it's cheap. Second, it's easy to make. And third, it's strong. But its importance hides a looming specter of pollution. And the reason for this is in its molecular structure. I'll let Morgan break it down for us. Limestone mixes with other materials in a huge kiln at very high temperatures. And as the kiln separates the limestones, a calcium carbonate structure, an extremely dirty strand of carbon is emitted by the tongue. This it results in a hard substance called clinker. Here Morgan talks for a bit, but allow me to give a rough translation. Cement is basically a bunch of carbon atoms. So when you create it, a very dirty strand of carbon is let off, meaning its problems are literally cemented into its molecular structure. It also makes its pollution a bit more complicated than, say, for the transportation industry, where the transportation industry can just dramatically lower its emissions by using a different sort of fuel. To fix cement, an industry would actually have to literally invent a new type of material. It would be like a car company inventing an alternative to the crankshaft. That's a pretty hefty task. But as we noted, the cement industry is a really heavy polluter. And there's this looming specter of carbon emission regulations in the markets. So you'd think the industry would be working toward an alternative, perhaps pushed on by risk-adverse investors that are aware of the problem. Yet Morgan found less than 5% of companies are aggressively pursuing any update to their current process, which makes things risky for investors in the cement industry. If the world will eventually move toward a low-carbon future, then it will have to one day soon reckon with the problem of cement. Yet it seems no one in the industry is really pursuing change. I asked Morgan to explain why not. Some efforts that are definitely being made by those cement companies that make up the NSCI Acqui Index to incorporate clean energy initiatives, meaning they're going to use more alternative fuels in their production processes. There are also some efforts being made uh, to make their operations more energy efficient. Well, Morgan, okay, so I see that's all well and good, but I see two problems with those efforts. First, they aren't aggressively pursuing these updates. Your report says that these commitments are for, quote, standard or limited emission reduction targets. And the second issue, which, which you told me about earlier, actually, is that the problem is not simply the intensive heating process, which, yeah, could be addressed by using more renewable energy sources, the big problem is the way limestone chemically decomposes and the carbon dioxide released in the atmosphere as that limestone is decomposing. This is the major problem. And your report does explore the fact that the industry understands the issue. So I guess I'm curious why they haven't made cutting their carbon emissions more of a priority. Well, I guess it's the, the whole um, capital allocation of companies. I guess maybe they don't see enough of a drive to develop and innovate into these products. Out to 2030, there's, there's an increasing forecast for cement demand. So no matter what they do, um, all things being equal, there's always going to be someone who needs cement and there's always going to be someone who needs a lot of cement. So, so maybe there's not enough of that regulatory drive. And this is where a lack of 
a proper stick, I guess, in terms of carbon performance um, plays out in that companies are spending what they think they need when, uh, while still maintaining profit, maintaining their, their own um, profitability, whereas they should be spending more, or they could be spending a lot more. Yet the spending priorities of a public company are usually wed to the concerns of the shareholders or rather keeping the business profitable. There would have to be a massive push by cement industry stakeholders for there to be any change. For investors, that push could come in a couple forms. First, they can engage with the company. Engagement is basically calling up a cement company and asking people at it questions like, why haven't you disclosed your carbon emissions? When will you disclose your carbon emissions? Do you need assistance in calculating your carbon emissions so they can be disclosed? And so on and so forth. But until recently, not many investors were engaging with the cement industry. This is due to a problem of incentives. Direct company engagement is playing the long game. You build a rapport with a company and try to help it change its processes, practices, or structures. Most asset managers and large shareholders do not directly engage with companies to fundamentally change its business model. And engagement is usually conducted behind the scenes. Instead, there is a more forceful way to try to get companies to comply. Direct company engagement is like politely asking your neighbors to pick up their dog shit. Whereas filing a shareholder resolution is like taking that shit, putting it in a bag in front of your neighbor's house, and lighting it on fire for the world to see. Shareholder resolutions are one of the most effective tools for investors to engage with the company. Once accepted by a certain percentage of shareholders, such resolutions must be submitted to the company board for approval at their next annual meeting. Then the resolution is publicly voted on in the form of a proxy vote. And this means should a resolution be brought to a cement company regarding its emissions and the company rejects that resolution for whatever reason, it will become a matter of public record. However, when looking through Proxy Insight, a website that details all the proxies filed in the public markets, I saw that there was not a single proxy put forth to address the emissions in the cement industry. Not even one calling for the cement companies to start planning for a plan to kind of plan on how they will limit future carbon emissions, which is troubling. It's really quite remarkable that investors haven't established the importance of or recognized the importance of, of this industry and its impact um, on climate. Rick Marshall, our lead governance analyst and proxy expert. It's it's an area ripe for exploration, ripe for discussion, and yet there doesn't seem to have been any activity. I guess one question investors uh, maybe haven't figured out is what the investment problem is. You know, what's the threat? Is there a threat for these companies? If there's no threat for these companies, then they're typically loath to take action because at the end of the day, that's mm. the key question. But, you know, clearly this is an enormous problem waiting to happen. And I can't imagine that there wouldn't be an impact at these companies. This is what went down for the fossil fuel industry. You see, five or ten years ago, no one in oil and gas was worried about renewables. They were just worried about how they were going to meet the ever-increasing oil demand. 
Then all of a sudden, renewables got really cheap, and there was this massive social movement against the fossil fuel industry, which was helped along by a rather damning investigation by Inside Climate News in 2015 that uncovered Exxon documents showing in the 1970s, the company commissioned a team of real independent scientists to conduct a decade-long study on the effects of carbon on the Earth's atmosphere and what it would do to the viability of, you know, their business model, burning oil. And that... The report showed top brass was warned of the threat carbon emissions would have to Exxon's core business. There was even one scientist that said, if present thinking holds, man has a time window of five to ten years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical. The investigation was so bad that the New York Attorney General almost successfully sued ExxonMobil in 2018, alleging that the world's largest oil company for years misled investors about the risks of climate change regulations on its core business. So yeah, things can change rather quickly. Here's Rick again. We're in an environment now where investors are, I think, more in tune with just how effective shareholder proposals can be as a tool that, than they were previously. Um, so we're seeing more serious shareholder proposals being filed and companies having to deal with those. When I first started recording this story, there wasn't much going on with the cement industry. Sure, it was still polluting a lot, but it was making a lot of money also, and so investors were still investing. But then, on July 21st, I saw this article in the Financial Times that was touting a group of investors representing trillions in U.S. dollars who were trying to get the cement industry to ramp up its preparations for the low-carbon economy, including cutting carbon emissions to a net zero by 2050. The group of investors, which included Standard Life Aberdeen and BMP Paribas Asset Management, were motivated by the success investors had at Royal Dutch Shell. You see, Shell had recently decided to set carbon emission targets and link its executives' pay to achieving those targets. So it seemed like a big deal to me. The success at Shell had emboldened investors to take their power and go after the cement industry, just as they had done to the fossil fuel industry. These investors have also been helped along by non-corporate entities that are getting into the game. For example, the Carbon Disclosure Project, an organization dedicated to helping corporates disclose more environmental data, released a report last year detailing which cement companies were most at risk as the world tries to cut its carbon emissions. And then in April, the International Energy Association released a report that contained a low-carbon technology roadmap aimed at reducing the cement industry's emissions by 24% by 2050. And these organizations always added in a juicy nugget of concern for investors to marinate on and act on. They would say something like, if the cement industry doesn't change, our society will not be able to function as we now know it. It kind of felt like what was being said about the burning of fossil fuels. But the major difference between the cement industry and the fossil fuel industry is that there is a market-ready alternative to fossil fuels in renewable energy, and cement does not have such a market-ready alternative. But some are being developed. Before I started working with MSCI ESG Research, I met this professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT named Franz Joseph Um. And he told me about this new type of cement he and his team created, which had one less carbon atom in its molecular structure and was twice as strong as normal cement. And recently there was a story on August 8th in NPR about Gorov Sant, 
He's a professor of civil engineering and material science at the University of California, Los Angeles. And it was reported that Santa's team created another form of cement that was much less carbon intensive than traditional cement, which is great. But there's one problem. These new types of cement are more expensive to make. And do you remember the beginning of this podcast when we talked about why cement is the protagonist of the world's growth? Well, one of the reasons was because it was cheap to manufacture. And until this new, more sustainable cement is cheaper than its counterpart, most companies won't adopt a new construction material unless they are incentivized. The issue is actually mentioned quickly in the NPR story. After the reporter Nathan Ross discusses the benefits of the new cement and how revolutionary it is and how it even won a prize for its greatness, he adds in one quick caveat to its success. He says the goal of the cement's creators is to make it an economically competitive product. Because without cost parity, like how renewable energy is now cheaper than coal, no investor or company will be ready to adapt the new cement into their portfolio or their business or their building project or whatever it is. Professor Um actually phrased it well when I was talking with him about the cement he made. He said, I created the unaffordable supercar. Now I need to create the affordable truck. But once it's created, the sheer profit that can be made from a low-carbon alternative to cement will be worth the effort. All right, that's it. This was the long form of the ESG Now podcast, and this show was produced and hosted by myself, Mike DiCipato, with a lot of help from Matt Muscardi, Bentley Kaplan, Morgan Ellis, Megan Eastman, Rick Marshall, Andrew Young, and many others. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us. It is always appreciated. And keep a lookout for the weekly version of this podcast where we discuss the weekly news with an ESG where we discuss the weekly news with an ESG twist. Thanks again, and talk to you soon. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.